First Corinthians and the, the letters to the Corinthians are great letters. You know, I've been blessed with the opportunity to share with you guys through this book a few times in the past, and uh, it's really just been a blessing to, to me. Thanks, bro. Uh, it's been a, this book has been a real blessing to me. The Lord used it early on in my walk. Uh, I remember just being saved for a few months uh, in my bedroom at night at my mom's house, reading the Bible, and just wow, this is it's this book is very clear. It's very sharp at times. And it's very direct, and I think it's got uh, great stuff in it. And so the, the series to Corinthians has been called Be a Believer, because I think Corinthians is very instructive on very clear things, on what not to do and what to do and what's right and what's wrong, and also, you know, what is kind of the Lord looking for? And uh, I think we need that. I know I do, uh, especially in our day and age. But the title for tonight's message, um, I cheated. I took uh, the title from a verse later on that we'll see. It's called For Our Admonition. For our admonition. You know, we'll see what that means in a little bit. But Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, it was written in AD 60, so around 30 years after the Lord rose from the grave and went to heaven. Um, it was a church Paul planted. But it was a church in need of correction, instruction, and wisdom. Isn't that us all? I think sometimes we're like, okay, I could use some wisdom. Or I could use some instruction. But correction? I don't know. I don't like correction. God bless you. Or... Maybe we think we're wise enough already, but the, the longer I walk, and I haven't walked that long, I realize, man, I'm pretty dumb. I'm pretty foolish, you know? But God's not, and I know God, so it's okay. But godly wisdom is important in all life's matters, from the smallest decision to the largest, largest decision. You know, it's a, excuse me, let me get a reset there. Godly wisdom is important in, in all life's matters. You know, it's important in the small things and the large things. I think sometimes we just relegate it to the large things. Lord, should I buy this house? Should I not buy this house? Lord, should I take this job? Should I not take this job? You know, should I marry this person? Should I not marry this person? And we kind of skip over the little ones. You know, sometimes we're, we're going, oh, do I get the double-stuffed Oreos or the regular stuff? You know, maybe you're on a diet and you just get the regular stuff. I don't know. But really, those little decisions add up to big decisions. And sometimes the big decisions in life are only big decisions because we've skipped the little decisions. If we had just sought God on all the little decisions, that big decision in life wouldn't really be a big decision. It's like, you know, marriage. You know, my wife is wonderful. I made some wrong decisions, right decisions along the way. But with my wife, I knew she was the one that God had for me. And so it was a big decision to get married in one way. But in the other way, it was a little decision because, well... This is the one God has for me, and I knew that because God told me. It's that simple. But the Word of God is our source for wisdom. It should be our primary source for wisdom. You know, it's not the counsel of man. It's not feelings, or shouldn't be feelings, or circumstances, or experience. All these things can be good. The counsel of men, a, a good friend, uh, a loved one. You know, maybe it's even a pastor, or maybe it's someone on the radio. Hopefully not Oprah, but it, you can get good counsel from some people. Feelings. Feelings can be good sometimes. They can be an indicator of what's going on in your life. It's sort of like when you're driving and the oil light comes on. That's an indicator that something's going on. I mean, maybe you need oil or maybe the light's busted or I don't know. But that's sometimes an indicator. My wife's old car, it would flicker all the time, so you had no idea. It was, it was you know, like, oh, no, it's got oil. I don't know what it is. It was funny. But that's the same way our feelings can be. They can flicker on and off, whether there's really a problem or not. And so if we begin to follow them, we'll always be stopping to check the oil. And we'll never get where we're going. And that's a bad example, but enjoy. <laughs> but our circumstances, too. Circumstances can sometimes show us that, hey, we've made bad decisions, and now I'm in a bad circumstance. But sometimes we're just in bad circumstances. Sometimes you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you weren't doing anything wrong. So you can't let circumstances dictate your life either, or experience. Sometimes experience is good, you know. You go through something, you like trial by error. That's how I learn a lot of things. It's like you go through something, oh, that's the wrong way to do it. That's how they came up with the light bulb. Apparently Thomas Edison figured out a thousand ways not to do it until he figured out the right way. So it's good to learn from experience, especially if we failed. If we failed in something... It's good to learn from that because, hey, we went through all this trouble and all this failure and all the problem that goes along with it. We should probably take something out of it. You know, we should probably salvage something from that wreck wreckage and get away with it. 
But experiences lie too. You know, sometimes our recollection of experience isn't exactly the way it was, or sometimes the way we feel about an experience isn't exactly the truth either. So all these things, while they're good, they really need to be built on the foundation of God's Word. What does God's Word say plainly? What does it say? You know, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, Jesus loves you. All these basic things. But then also on top of that, what does it say to you? And what does it say to me? And in my devotion this morning, it was talking about that, about, you know, this Word is written for you and for me. It's written for everybody. So when we come to read it, we need to come to the Lord and say, Lord, what do you have to say to me about it today? And we'll do that right now. Father, your word is true and it's good and, and you're wise. And God, I pray that, Lord, you would reveal to us what's good in your word and what words you have specifically for all of us today. I know I need to hear from you and I'm sure there's plenty of things in here that, that need to be said to each of us by you. And Lord, uh, would you use this time to do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to set the timer so that we can get you out of here before 6 o'clock. Let's read the first five verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them, or that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And just like sometimes we see therefore in the Bible when we're supposed to ask, what is it therefore? Well, we just saw moreover. Well, what is that therefore? Let's, so let's go back and read a few verses, starting in verse 24. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, do, not, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, as one, uh, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So with that in light, with the fact that we're all supposed to be running this race, if we're believers, we're running a race. It's a marathon to get to heaven. We're saved. You know, when we get to the finish line, God's going to let us in if we know Jesus. You know, it's not about how well we ran or what our time was or what kind of shoes we were wearing when we got there, but that he would let us in. But it's still a race. You get saved? Well, a lot of us get saved, and the next thing that happens is we get up and go to work. It's not we go to heaven. There's a time difference between when you get saved and when you go to heaven. So there's a distance to be covered. From the day you get saved, from the day you go home to be to the Lord, whether it's through death or through his return. And Paul says that they exercise, and they're modern in all things, and they figure out the best way, the best way to run, the right gait, I guess they call it, they have the right diet and everything. But Paul says that, that physical exercise profits little. Not that it's good. You know, I've been trying to watch my diet a little bit lately, very little bit, you know, double stuff to single stuff. <laughs> but sincerely, spiritual exercise, spiritual wellness profits much more because our bodies are going to die one day, we're going to get a new body. Praise the Lord. But our spirit lives forever, so what's more important that we work out? I think it's, more, it's great if you go to the gym, but it's more important that you spend time with the Lord in the morning. You know, at least that's my excuse. But Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. And that word, uh, I can't pronounce it in Greek, but it's where we get the word agnostic, which apparently means ignoramus. So if people call themselves agnostic, well, it's, you're not really, everyone's like, I'm agnostic. You know, I'm an idiot. But the word means to be ignorant, not to know, not to understand or unknown, to err or sin through mistake, or to be wrong. You know, and it's not a time to be ignorant. Our day and age is not a time to be ignorant. History repeats itself, guys. You know, let's talk about the cycle of nations. I don't remember all the steps, but basically people start out in this repressive nation. They eventually they rebel and they get enough power to rebel. They overflow the gov- overthrow the government, create a new government which is supposed to be better for them. And then prosperity comes, and then apathy comes, and then they want the government to take care of all their needs again, and then all of a sudden they're back under a dictatorship because they think it's, oh, this is new. This is better. And then a few years pass, and they go, oh, this isn't any good. 
but they've taken away all our guns, and now we can't overthrow them anymore. But this isn't a political message. It's not. But if you're a believer, you should be political. But really, this is even more so, I think, more prevalent in our own lives. We go through something. We either don't learn from it or we learn from it and we come out on the other side of it and we go good for a while and then the rose-colored glasses come back on and we go, oh, it, was, it wasn't so bad. Let me go back to that. And then we find ourselves on the side of the road not running anymore and that's, that's not God's desire for our lives. You know, great wisdom comes through learning from other people's mistakes. It's much easier that way. You know, Paul's encouraging us to not be unaware of what happened in the Old Testament. I think a lot of times we get saved and we come to the Lord, which is fantastic, we read the New Testament because it's a little bit easier to understand. Perfect, great, I get that. I like it too. That's why we're in Corinthians. You know, I'm not going through Leviticus right now. <laughs> I don't know how much we get. But we need to not be unaware of what happened in the Old Testament because the Old Testament is just as much Scripture, in fact, there's more books than the New Testament. The New Testament is just kind of saying, oh, well, this is what the Old Testament meant. This is the fulfillment of it, and this is how it applies now that the Messiah has come and that he's returning. But we, we can only do that effectively if we, don't, if we understand what the Old Testament is talking about. And we can't understand what it's talking about if we don't know what it says. And if we don't know what it says, we won't know what it says unless we read it. And so we're going to read a little bit of the Old Testament a little bit here. But Paul is definitely encouraging us to not be aware of what took place there because it's a physical picture of our spiritual predicament. You know, are we aware, are you aware of the Old Testament? Are we aware of our spiritual predicament at this very moment right now? Are you aware of what's going on spiritually in your life? Paul says that they were all under the cloud, all under the cloud. And what that simply was, was the Israelites were in the wilderness and they were under the cloud. There was a cloud that went before them. Um, it covered them. It led them. It protected them. It provided for them. And it was promised to them. God raised up Moses after all that time in the wilderness. You know, He probably had some crazy leather neck and some tan, and he brought them out of Egypt, and he led them forth. And they stepped out in faith, and the, the Dead Sea parted, and they walked through, and God took care of their enemies. And he led them forth by a cloud. Uh, that pillar of cloud actually kept the Egyptians back. And it says that at one point that they were baptized into Moses. You know, the, you know, they came out of Egypt, they followed Moses, they went through the water, they came out of the water, and they followed Moses through the wilderness. And that's a physical picture of our spiritual walk. We came out of sin, led forth by the cloud, the Holy Spirit. Not that the Holy Spirit's a cloud, but it's a picture. He brought us under the water in baptism, dying to ourselves, identifying with Christ's death and resurrection, and being born again, a new life, and then walking through this wilderness we call Orange County, New York. You know, this wilderness we call economic downturn. This wilderness we call a sinful world. You know, Jesus was even baptized. You know, Jesus didn't step out. He said, hey, I got to do this to fulfill um, my Father's will. I got to fulfill the scriptures here. You know, John didn't want to baptize me. He's like, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus knew it was important to do what the Lord had asked him to do. You know, we see that the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness, God provided food for them. Because you're in the desert, you know, there's not a quick check everywhere. You need to get food somewhere. And so God provided manna for them. Manna from heaven. Day after day, manna. And they got sick of it after a while. In some sense, I don't blame them. In the other sense, well, beggars can't be choosers. And God also provided water from a rock for them on several occasions. You know, and these were physical foods. The manna and the water kept their physical bodies alive. The quail kept their physical bodies alive. So what about their spirit? Well, the cloud went before them by day, the fire by night. You know, it's the same pillar. It's just at night you can see it, and the day it's, you know, smoke. The Ten Commandments, Moses leading them, Ark of the Covenant, Aaron's rod, all these things, spiritual food. Ten Commandments, that was their scripture. You know, the first chunk of the first commandment is all about loving God. And the last one, too, is about coveting. Paul says that I had not known sin until the law showed me sin and that the sin was spiritual, it's internal. Coveting is not an external thing. Coveting is an internal thing, that this law was a spiritual law. And it says the rock which followed them. You know, we talked about 
the rock, getting water from it. You know, God told Moses to get water from a rock on two occasions. On the first occasion, he was to strike the rock, and water came out. And Moses got a little frustrated with the people. You know, the people are complaining against him. And, you know, Moses, like probably the rest of us, or at least me, you know, I got frustrated on the throughway. I can imagine trying to lead millions of people through the desert. <laughs> you know, he got frustrated. And he struck the rock again when God told him to speak to it. And God's gracious, and God brought water out the rock to take care of his people. But God said, Moses, that's not how I asked you to live. That's not how I asked you to represent me to the people. And so I'm going to have to keep you back from the promised land. And so Moses died in the wilderness. He got to see the promised land on the hill, but he didn't get to go in. And yet God, like any good dad who says, you're in trouble, I'm not taking you to the Castle Fund Center, like I said I would. A couple weeks later, he says, all right, let's go to the Castle Fund Center. So when Jesus was on the mountain, it was transfigured, guess who showed up? Moses and Elijah. So God brought Mo back in, and it was good. But there's consequences. You know, it's important, and how important it is that we represent God rightly. You know, Moses had, a, I think, in a sense, a bigger responsibility than we do because they just had the Ten Commandments. Moses was the only guy they could go to to get the Word of God at that point, except for maybe pass down stories. You know, thankfully today we have the Word of God, which is infallible, and, and you can't prove it wrong. People have been trying, and they can't. You know, you have Jesus, who was the visible image of the invisible God. He lived a perfect life, so people don't have an excuse because Jesus was perfect. We're imperfect, but God's going to go, well, yeah, they're imperfect, so are you, but Jesus wasn't. What did you do with him? But that doesn't negate the fact that we still need to be responsible with the way we live our lives. Do our lives match up to what the Scripture says? And it's important. You know, it's important for our personal life. It's important for ministry, whether you're in a quote-unquote ministry as a title, or your ministry is going to work every day and loving on the people, or your ministry is taking care of the kids at home and, and the husband who comes home and is upset all the time, like my wife has to deal with but our family and our children, but also unbelievers. You know, a lot of people, they don't know the Scripture. They haven't even read the Scripture. And so when they see us, when they see how we treat our family, when they see how we leave, live our lives, do they see God rightly? Do they see us striking the rock? Or do they see us speaking to the rock and life coming out of it? You know, 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Paul says, be diligent. This isn't something that just comes naturally, per se. It's not something we do on our own. It's not, that's not what I'm saying. It's by the Spirit of God. But we still need to be diligent in our study and in our pursuit and in applying these things to our life. But we do that by rightly dividing the word of truth. If, if God's word is wisdom and God's word is what he has to say, well, the first step in getting that wisdom into our lives is reading it and understanding it. And like the Bible says, the rightly divided. Because if, if we don't understand what it says plainly, it's going to come out all whack in our lives. It's going to be very different. You know, we need to rightly make sense of Scripture. And I'll give you a, a quick example that's not really a too big a deal, but how many know the part of that verse that says, where two or more are gathered, there I am in the midst of them? You guys know that, right? Do you guys know that the entire part of that verse is, when you guys are gathered for, I'm not, I'm not doing it verbatim, but it's when there's church discipline going on, when there's a problem going on, and you need to make a judgment call and a discipline call, I'll be there in the midst of you two who are making the judgment call because two witnesses were needed for these things uh, under the law, but it's also two witnesses need to be done in the church. So when there's a problem in the church, when there's a problem that needs to be taken care of and the leadership comes together and agrees, or you two agree, like the Bible says, if you have a problem with someone, or they have a problem with you and you go to them and it doesn't work out and you bring a friend to go deal with them and work it out, well, that's, that's two people. So we've kind of twisted that scripture to mean, okay, well, anytime I hang out with, with Joe, God's there. And he's in the midst of us. Well, that is true. He is there. So it's not totally out of context. But God's there all the time. God is with you. If, if you're a believer, he lives inside of you. You don't need your friend to have time with God. You can go to your room by yourself. You can go to, like a friend was sharing before, you can find a trailer somewhere on vacation and, and spend time with God alone there, away from everybody. And, and having children now, which is a blessing, it's so much harder to find that, that quiet time, but I still do because you need it. But we need to rightly divide the word, especially in these last days. You know, things are crazy. And I don't mean in the world. Things are crazy in the church, guys. It's crazy. I think some of the stuff I know now, if I knew when I was getting saved, I'd go, Lord, is there another way? 
but it's okay. You know, let's, let's look at this picture. Imagine a surgeon not rightly dividing your organs when operating. You know, you've got a bad kidney, and he goes in there and goes, well, that kind of looks like a kidney. Uh, let's just go for it. Takes it out, and you get out, and you're still sick. Or sometimes you hear they leave instruments still stuck inside you. I don't know how you do it. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I'm sure there's a way to do it. They're much smarter than me, but I don't know. I mean, I forget lines of code at work, but that's a little different than leaving the scissors in some guy's belly. You know? But it's crazy. You know, we need to rightly divide it. We're going to see a lot about deception here in a minute, but part of that is that we don't follow signs because signs follow the believer, not the believer signs. And in Matthew 16, 1 through 4, Jesus says, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came to him, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it's evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. These religious guys come to Jesus with a question. He says, okay, guys, you guys can figure out the weather. You can tell that because of the jet stream coming down in the Midwest and they're getting all this snow, that we're going to have snow in a couple days. And you can tell that you know, you're going to have to start salting the driveway and start you know, doing whatever because of the way the sky looks. You know, before it rains, I don't know if you ever noticed, the, the, tree, the leaves on the trees kind of turn upside down. And they kind of you know, they show their underside. I don't know why it goes on. Maybe it's just the wind. But it's noticeable before a big storm. You can see it. And I always go, there's a storm coming in. People go, how do you know that? I'm like, the leaves turn upside down. People go, what? Well, maybe I'm making it up, but I've seen it. If I've seen it, it's true. No, I was kidding. But really, he says to them, you guys are supposed to be the religious leaders. You can figure out the weather, but you have no idea about what's going on spiritually. You know the scriptures. You know the prophecies about the Messiah. The Messiah is the one you're challenging and you don't even see him. So I'm just going to give you one sign. That's the sign of Jonah. And he says, see you later, and walks away. Wow, well, what's the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah was, well, Jonah was a prophet. He kind of disobeyed God. He didn't want to do it God's will. He got on a boat, jumped overboard trying to kill himself, and then a fish swallowed him and brought him back and spit him out. But the sign of Jonah is that Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, or the belly of the fish, and was spit up and came out, and the people repented. And that's Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus went to the heart of the earth for three days, came out, and people repented. He says, that's the only sign I'm going to give you. I'm not going to make a chicken appear or do something fantastic. I'm going to die on the cross and come back to life, and and that's the only sign you guys are going to get because you missed it. And signs can be misleading. You know, have you ever uh, heard of those stories about the people who follow the GPS and just, I don't know how they do it. I've heard of it once, someone in like a really expensive car doing it. Like, well, uh, anyway. They're driving on the GPS, and they follow the direction of the GPS, and something's wrong with the map on the GPS, and they end up like in the middle of a field, like stuck in a ditch. Well, you're following the GPS. Did you not see the road ending? <laughs> you know? Or you see these videos on YouTube of like the truck coming, and some guy for somehow has like the, it's set up by the overpass, and you see the truck come under the overpass, and like the back of the truck like rips off. You know, were you not paying attention that the sign said 10-foot overpass, and you got a 12-foot truck? You know? I don't know, maybe... <laughs> Maybe you're watching videos of the GPS guys while you're driving. I don't know. But signs can be misleading. And in fact, the Bible says that, even more so than that, that there are lying signs and wonders. You know, that there are miracles. There are things that happen on earth that are lying. They're lying. They're not from God. We hear of these people uh, in places such as South America, for one example, that go and to a statue of Mary with blood coming out of its eyes. And... That's scary. You know, if it's not some guy under the table doing a little hand pump and blood comes out, that's scary. Why would you go see that? And even if you would go see it, do you think God would do that? No, the only blood God poured out was from his son Jesus at the cross. He's not going to put it on some statue in South America that you might come down and worship some statue. That's a lying sign of wonder. And many good, you know, in a sense, good-minded people who are seeking God but are deceived are going after these things and they're led astray and they miss the real point. And you know, deception in the, is so great in the last days that the Bible says even the elect would be deceived if it were possible. 
And I think we're in those days, guys. Look at the things that are going on in Iran. This isn't a political message, but all the things that are going on in the world. All the things that believers are saying. You know, there's a popular worship leader, uh, a female, came out and said that she's lesbian and that it's okay and that, you know, her record sales are suffering, but, you know, so that's hard. And it's like she had these great worship songs and it's like, I, I don't understand it. I mean, I can understand if, if she, like, struggled with it or fell into it and, and admitted, yes, this is sin or whatever, but no. Or these other guys you might have heard of lately who are these worship leaders who say, oh, no. We've come to a greater understanding of enlightenment and the Bible, and we don't take it literally anymore. Well, did God write it or what? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't grasp it. And my mind is tiny, but I don't grasp how you can worship God in, in such a way and have such a major sin in your life. I mean, we all have sin in our lives. There's things in my life that the Lord is dealing with that He's working on and pointing out that need to be dealt with. But I, I, I just, I don't get it. I don't get how something's so glaring, and that's it. It's deception. So it's little decisions. You know, the enemy will use these lying signs and wonders, even healings, to trick people. The Bible says that the enemy can disguise himself as an angel of light. So what does that mean? He can look like he's there on God's business. He can look like he's saying even godly things. That's a nice suit you got there, godly pastor. Or, I'm so glad you gave up all your worldly possessions, spiritual leader. That's so holy. No. It's not what the Bible says. You know, there needs to be fruit in there. We need to... False teachers are rampant. But it says that even the elect, you know, they're not going to be deceived because, well, if you have God in you, God can't be deceived. So when you hear that still small voice and you obey that still small voice and you obey what the Scripture says and you're in the Scripture, it's going to be obvious. I mean, it's like... You get saved and you look back at your unbelieving friends and family and you go, how do you not get it? <laughs> how do you not see that this is the truth? Because it's obvious to you now because the spirit of truth lives inside you. And you know what the Bible has to say. But when we wander from that, guys, is when we get into a lot of trouble. But you know what? When we follow God in faith, that's when the signs show up. You know, the rock followed them. You know, Ash and I have moved a bunch of times, but a quick story. We moved, uh, I guess it was, it was last November, time flies, but uh, it was last November, and we were at a house for a while, and it was a blessing, but we, you know, things were starting to get tight, and we weren't able to kind of make ends meet anymore, so we're like, all right, Lord, this must be you leading us to move on, and so we began to pray and pack and gave a, an end date for our landlord, and we began to get ready and move out, and two weeks to move day, we didn't have a place to live. One week to move day, didn't have a place to live. And, I, you know, I'm, this isn't a sob story, but it's just the truth. I didn't have money for um, a deposit. And I'm like, all right, Lord, well, I'm looking, and I know you're going to provide somehow because I know you will, and Ashley was praying too. And, you know, we're, you know, we're distraught by it. We're not walking around. Everything's fine. But we knew that the Lord was going to handle it. We just didn't know. And after service, a friend comes up to me who I hadn't seen in a while. He goes, hey, I know somebody who's got a place. Are you looking for a place? I go, Yeah. <laughs> and they were believers, and they were a blessing, and we were at the apartment off their house in like the woods for a while. It was so restful. Like, man, I want to move back to the woods. <laughs> you know, Amazon Prime, I can get everything that way. But it was a blessing. I didn't say, God, show me a sign. I said, all right, Lord, this is where you're leading. I know you're my dad, and you're going to care for me because you've told me that over and over, and you've proved yourself, and we're just going to go, and whatever happens, you know, it's your doing. And he did. Verse 5, though. Verse 5 says, But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Wow, God was not well pleased. That's a hard thing. I'm glad I'm not up here the one saying, With most of you, God's not well pleased. No, I, I don't believe that's the case today. But why? They didn't believe in Him. Hebrews 11.6, again, a picture of all these people from the Old Testament. It says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who, what? Diligently seek him. That God wants to reward you if we would just seek him. God wants to grant you the things that you need if we would just let him through faith. But he says that he wasn't pleasing them. You know, they came out of the wilderness, they had all these signs and wonders that we talked about, and they still murmured and complained and didn't believe. And so what happened? They died off in the wilderness 40 years, and their children 
got to inherit the promises because their children believed. You know, only the generation that was born in the wilderness went on to that. And I think that's, that's the same thing. You know, we can believe through ritual and religion and going to church our whole lives, but until we're born again in the wilderness of life, that's the only way we're going to really know and really believe. You know, I think sometimes with children and parents, you know, some of us didn't have believing parents, and then some of us got saved, and then you have kids, and the kids grow up in a believing household, and I think it's like a slingshot for them. You know, I think on one hand, it's like, you can grow up in bad circumstances, and God uses that to get you out, but I think also, I think like my daughter, I hope it's a slingshot for her that, you know, that hopefully things are okay in in the house, and that God can use it to help her bring her into the promised land, but... We need to be born again, guys. We need to be born again. Not to be scattered, but to follow God. Not the signs, not the memories, and certainly not idols. Let's go on, uh, 6 through 10. Uh, Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. It says here that now these things became our examples. Why? To keep us from evil and from lusting after it. And man, is it ever a day and age where there's evil out there and it's nothing but, let's just lust after it. But these people, their stories were put in the Old Testament. Why? To show us the effects. To show us the effects of sin, of lusting after evil and committing it. I think of, you guys ever hear that show, Scared Straight? Where they take these like punk kids who are getting in trouble, and they bring them to jail, and they get like a big tattooed, burly man or woman to scream in their face and try and scare them into making the right decision. And I think that that's good in some ways. I think that that can have a lot of impact on someone's life. But with things like that, when it's not grounded and it's not even keel over a long term like the Bible is, I think it could be like a sign and wonder where it works for a little bit, but it begins to wear off. It begins to wear off. You know, God always uses examples in our life to instruct us and to warn us. Why? That we don't go through things the hard way. That when we go through something, he wants us to learn from it. Or when someone else goes through something, He wants us to learn from it so that we don't have to get hurt by the same things over and over and over again. You know, I remember being told a story of my sister when she was little touching the, the stove. And to this day, I think I'm still kind of afraid to touch the stove. Maybe that's why I don't cook. I don't know. <laughs> Just kidding. You know, idolaters following false gods. You know, they wanted to go back to their Egyptian gods. It's putting faith in anything as God other than God himself. God himself was leading them through the wilderness, and he said, well, maybe it's better if we go back to Egypt. Really? You wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. What about the idol of entertainment, or apathy, or laziness? You know, um, That's where our society is at. It's very apathetic. No one wants to take responsibility. Everyone's pretty lazy. and um, Not that there's anything wrong with cable television per se, or having it as a believer, but a couple weeks ago, the Lord was... Well, it was Probably a couple more weeks ago, the Lord started leading me to like unplug the cable. Um, we get internet, and some TV channels come through for free. It always happens. I'm not like trying to scan the system; it happens. But um, I wasn't watching anything really bad per se. But I just like the Lord leading me to unplug it, unplug it. And finally, I unplugged it. And at first, it was kind of hard. I mean, we still watch YouTube and videos on. Uh, we have like a, a Blu-ray player that gets the internet, and so we still watch the TV from time to time. But it's not on all the time. And I don't find myself with nothing to do flipping through the channels, you know? And it's not, you know, we're not hanging out with the family and there's a commercial in the background, I got to mute it. It's like, we just don't need it on. And I find it's been such a blessing. I've been finding my mind's been more at rest. And even then, like, I'll be sitting around with nothing to do when I normally turn on the TV and change the channels. And uh, Lord will, like, nudge me to worship or spend time with Him. And it's been fantastic. And that's not to, like, say, oh, you know, how, how great have I done? But... Man, it's like when the Lord leads you to do something, there's always something uh, more blessing. And I'm sure I'll plug it back in from time to time when a certain show comes on that I'm looking forward to watching or something like that. But, you know, it's got to be... <laughs> Drew knows. But the point is, is that we need to find our escape in Jesus. And as a guy and as myself, it's easy to find my escape in 
tuning out while I'm tuning in. But the point is, is that sometimes our escape will become our prison if it's not the Lord. You know, look at all the affairs people get into, drugs, sex, crime, as an escape for their problems and where they end up. Broken family, addicted to drugs, suicidal, or in prison, or dead. Because they were looking for an escape, but it really imprisoned them. You know, and it's much better to learn from a bad example than to learn from no example at all. But the key is, be willing to learn. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. And how many times have people not heard the warning of God and go on and get in trouble? How many times has that happened in my own life where God's warned me and I've continued and ended up getting in trouble? You know, it's much easier to not go that long way through the wilderness. But, you know, construction zones, speeding tickets, you know, well, we were warned. They showed us the sign. They said, you know, you'll get in trouble if you go through it. You know, but the way God works is that he gives a lot of grace. He gives a ton of grace. That's what grace is. It's a lot of grace. But then he gives warning after warning after warning after warning. But at some point, he has to bring discipline. And at some point, he has to bring judgment. You know, as believers, we're, meant to be, we're supposed to be merciful and graceful with each other. But the government is not supposed to be merciful. The government is, is an institution by God. I mean, it doesn't always run the way God would have it to run. Of course, he's not the president. But if it were to run the way it's supposed to run, it's supposed to bring justice. And I think if the government were as just as it was supposed to be, the prisons weren't be as full, people would be a little more averse to doing crime, maybe. But the government has, we've got it twisted that we think that the government needs to be merciful and not. And yeah, you know, a judge can make a judgment call based on a person's character and everything. I mean, I'm not negating that. But there needs to be justice done. And God is a just God, and he, how more so does he need to bring justice in our lives or in other people's lives? Or sin. But that's the point of Jesus, guys, is that all that all his wrath was put on Jesus so we can escape his judgment. But you know, how many times have we heard things over and over and over from the Lord, from a radio message, devotional, from church, from personal time, from friends, and God tells us the same thing over and over and go, oh, I keep hearing that scripture. Or I keep hearing that, you know, area or that topic being taught on, or it keeps coming up in my life. Well, God's trying to teach you something. It's either, hey, this is coming down the road, or, hey, you've already driven off the road. He's saying, watch out. He's trying to warn you, instruct you, guide you, and help you. But we shouldn't lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And I think that that's a comfort, that the people in the Old Testament are just as screwed up as we are. It's just, they're the unfortunate ones who have their screw-ups written down for people to read forever. You know, but they did also, you know, with sexual immorality. And sexual immorality is rampant today, even in the church. And we're going to look at a picture here in Numbers 25. So let's turn to Numbers 25 quickly. And the picture here is of sexual immorality, but the root of this sexual immorality was really idolatry. And I think that's why God dealt with it the way he did in Numbers 25. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And I'm going to read most of it. Uh, and then just make a couple comments. Verse 1 in Numbers 25. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord, out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when uh, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from among the congregation... Excuse me, and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after um, the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. It's a little different than we read before, but I'm sure there's a reason. I just didn't look that up for time. 
then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the children of Israel, because he was zealous with my zeal among them, so that I did not consume the children of Israel in my zeal. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and his descendants after him a covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made atonement for the children of Israel. And we'll stop there. It says that the people were weeping and mourning. You know, it's as if there was something going on in this church, and it was something so horrible that it began to affect a lot of people. And those of us who were either affected or weren't affected or were still in a relationship with God came to church on a prayer night and were praying and worshiping for God, seeking his forgiveness and repenting and asking for him to heal our church. And so that's what they're doing here. And it says that 24,000 fell, that there was a disease in the camp until the leaders killed the leaders who were committing adultery with the Moabite women. You know, this, part, this act of idolatry that the Moabites had was you would do these sexual things as an act of worship to this idol. You know, the man that was killed was a leader. The Israelite man was a leader. And the daughter was a Moabitess. She was from a, uh, a people in the land. And she was the daughter of a leader of the Moabites. And I believe that, you know, this could speak of, I believe this does speak of, in a way, pornography. And how it affects leaders. And Christians specifically, we'll just talk about. Because it's something that can get a grip of you. And a lot of Christians do struggle with it. And I can understand that in a sense. But as a Christian leader, it should have no place in our lives. And as a believer, it should have no place in our lives. But if you're in leadership, it can affect you severely. And affect those around you. You know, and it's with these daughters of the enemy. These people out there doing things that God would never have them do because they're stuck and they're trapped in their own prisons. You know, how many times has God said that sex is meant for marriage only? Or marriage between one man and one woman? We see today the rise in STDs, HIV, AIDS, abortion, divorce, depression, suicide, drug use, and we don't think it's related. You know, there's this huge campaign, obviously, to get rid of AIDS and HIV and things, and, and, and I, I am for the end goal of that. But the solution is not education and, you know, some device to stop the disease. The solution, obviously, is Jesus, but really, practically, it's don't do the things. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Don't do illicit sexual things. Don't do intravenous drugs. And unless by some fluke chance you get it through a blood transfusion, you'll never get it. Or you'll never get an STD. Or you'll never have an unwanted pregnancy. It's that simple. But again, we look at that and we go, it's simple. And the world goes, no, that's not the solution. You can't even talk about that. It's crazy. It's the last days, guys. You know and this isn't God bringing judgment on the people because he hates them. He's saying, this is just the effects of sin, guys. It's death. You know, Romans 1, read that later for homework about what happens when we begin to forget God and what happens in our society. You know, it says that they tempted Christ. In the Old Testament, how is that possible? Well, I argue with you that Jesus was the one in the cloud. He was the one leading them forth. You know, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew 4. Satan came to him when he was fasting, you know, uh, said, turn these stones into bread, jump off the temple, and, you know, the scripture says, Jesus, that God's angels will guard you up. And Jesus says, you're not to tempt the Lord your God. And Satan tries to get him to bow down to him and give him the the kingdoms of the earth, you know. Um, But Jesus didn't do that. He knew the scriptures. He knew what the scriptures said. And I'm just going to, I shouldn't have moved forward, but I'm just going to read a couple more verses in Numbers 21. Four through nine. It says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea. This is before we read earlier, but to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Well, so the Lord sent fiery serpents. He didn't send a, a McDonald's truck, he sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he, he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that for everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. You know, this is kind of is an inspiration for the modern medical symbol, although it's really a Greek god that they kind of use with a serpent on the pole, you see maybe on an ambulance. But I believe they stole it from the truth. I mean, everything the enemy does is just a perversion of what God has already done. But it says here that, um, that they were complaining against God. This worthless bread. Wait a minute. You didn't have any bread a couple days ago. You didn't have any No water. Didn't Moses bring it out twice? Didn't he even put that tree into that pond and you guys all got water out of it? So what are they even talking about? I think that's a lot of times when we complain, it's like it's not even grounded in reality. I was at the store the other day and these people were complaining about a store policy about the way the store gives away free things or discounts on their merchandise and every customer is complaining about it. I'm like, they're giving you free stuff. They can do whatever they want. Why are you complaining? But anyway, now I'm complaining about them complaining. But complaining is poisonous to yourself and to those around you. It certainly made being on that line less fun. But we see here that bronze, the bronze serpent, it was judgment. And God said, take this picture of judgment that I put on you and make a bronze serpent out of it and look to it and I'll save you. And that's the picture of Jesus. That the sin and everything that was killing us was put onto Jesus and God's judgment was put on the Lord for us. That if we would just look to it and look to him, we'd be healed. Okay, so the list here back in Corinthians is idolatry, sexual immorality, all right, what next? Uh, murder, uh, you know, uh, genocide, uh, destroying the planet, something really big. Complaining. Idolatry, sexual immorality, and complaining. It's not usually the list that we think goes together, but apparently it does. Didn't we just read that in Numbers? They were complaining in 21. They were committing immorality and idolatry in 24, and How many times was God going to destroy them with that? But I think that the reason why God points this out is because complaining is judging God and saying that he's got it all wrong. God, you got it all wrong. You haven't provided enough for me. God, you got it all wrong. The Bible says that, but that can't be true. You know, things should be our way and not God's way is what we say when we complain. But if we have a need... Or this thing that we're complaining about, have we even asked God to handle it for us? I think a lot of times we complain because we never even ask God. And then when we ask God, we go, oh man. You know, God knows what we need even before we do. You know, just like Ashley and I or you might know for your children, you know what they need before they do. Sometimes just by their cry. You know, Philippians 2, 14-15 says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You know, that this generation, uh, we've been going through Philippians with the youth group, and this generation complains about everything. This generation is wicked and perverse, and we know that because they complain about everything. They're ungrateful, and, and I think we are too a lot of the times. And, and God wouldn't have it that way because when we're to become blameless and harmless by stopping complaining. And become blameless and harmless by being thankful. And it's interesting that he says become blameless and harmless because when we complain, we place blame and we also cause harm. You know, like maybe when we were little and mom made us dinner and we go, I want chicken nuggets. Mom just spent all the time making that dinner, you know? Two and a half minutes in the microwave. Just kidding. Just because my mom's over there. I'm just busting on her. She She would work and come home and make me a good dinner. Most of the time. But... It's better than dinner I make for myself, I'll tell you that much. My mom's dinners are great. But really, we complain because we're ungrateful. Or, Dad only gave me 20 bucks for allowance. Well, how many times did you take the trash out? None. And he still gave you money? I don't know. Complaining leads to destruction. It starts with being discontent, but it leads to destruction. You know, everyone who gets divorced at some time said what? I do. It's that person that they want to divorce from. And before that, they said, will you marry me on one knee? <laughs> you know, they took him to this special place. Before that, they said, hey, what's your number? And, you know, they did, you know, they showered and shaved and all these things. So what happened? Complaining. Disputing. Not being thankful. Being discontent. Desiring something else. 
And most often when someone says they want a divorce, there is already someone else in the picture they're willing to cut their vow with and be with. It's usually the case. But my question to the other person, if you're involved with someone who's already married, is, well, why would you be with this person if they aren't faithful to the person they're with now? What makes you any different? Just because you're new? Again, it's one of those obvious things you look on and go, this doesn't make any sense. But that's sin. It's deceitful. And we all know it when we've been deceived by it. We think we're doing the right thing. You know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. But it says that they were destroyed by the destroyer. They weren't destroyed by God. That when they complained, the enemy had his way with them. That's the same thing. When God's got a provision for us, and we complain, and we say, we don't want this provision, and we step out, well, we're free game. It's like a deer out on a hunting season, you know? It's like a dog that leaves his house and goes in the street. It's probably going to get hit. You know, we need to stay at home. Let's go on, and we'll read these last few verses and try and close up in the next hour. I'm just teasing. I'm sorry. I'm going to have a funny movie the second service. Verse 11. Uh, now, all, the, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be, may be able to bear it. You know, it says that it happened to them as examples. You know, who wants to be the example? Sure, for maybe a good thing, you want to be the example of that muscle-bound guy on the magazine, or you want to be the example of the, the Fortune 500 company guy who's got his own jet, you want to be successful. Or, you know, you want to have sneakers after you one day for being an all-star. You know, we all want to be successful in these ways. And, but really, you know, we see these worldly success stories. Well, what does their private life look like? No kids. Kids hate them. They're divorced. They're on drugs. They're committing suicide, as we see. You know, is it all it's cracked up to be? But I think here, the picture of being a bad example, who wants to be that guy? You know, remember when you are a kid, and well, maybe if you weren't like me, but you were acting up in class and the teacher would make an example of you to try and keep all the other kids in line. That never happened. By the court trying to make an example of you if you've committed a crime and the judge has got an agenda and they say, we're going to make an example out of you so no one else does it, but then everybody else still does it and they get off and you've got a life sentence. You know, all these things that go on, but it's not fun. You know, who wants their mistakes, like we talked about, read by billions of people throughout history? underlined, highlighted, put on someone's refrigerator. I don't want that. I don't even want to talk about my mistakes. Even saying that makes me think of mistakes. But the Lord has taken them away because I've given them to him and I don't have to think about them. He doesn't think about them, so I don't have to think about them. So I'm just going to read about someone else's mistakes and try not to make more going forward. Amen? This word admonition, um, it means admonition or exhortation. Thanks, Blue Letter Bible. But it can mean counsel, advice, or caution. A gentle reproof. You know, one of the examples given was drink plenty of water. You know, uh, that's an admonition. Drink plenty of water. You're going to dehydrate. Yesterday, uh, some friends were moving, and someone was trying to pour grease down the drain. And I said, well, make sure you put hot water and soap first. You know, that's an admonition because you don't want the thing to get clogged up. That's supposedly the way to do it. Or what about this one? Who has a hairdryer? That little warning label, right? Yeah, you guys are like, yeah, we got them. But uh, it says, do not use in the bathtub. There wasn't some graphic designer somewhere going, this is going to be a great one. Print, this is the warning label we're going to put on this one. No, it's because at least one person, probably many, said, I'm going to take a hair dryer and blow my hair while I'm in the bathtub with water with an electric appliance. And either they didn't understand how that all works and... Maybe that happened, but I would argue that I'm sure a lot of them understood the problem with using an electric device in a body of water and said, I can do it. I'm fine. I can handle this. And whoop. Really? That's admonition. You know, God wants us to be warned. Hey, spiritually, don't do that. You've seen what it's done in other people's lives. It's going to go the same way for you, buddy, if you keep in it. But he also wants us to be built up. You know, this word admonition can also have the idea of building up 
we're being encouraged. And I think that God wants us to build up our lives with wisdom, with his word, on the foundation of Jesus. That Jesus is the foundation and we put these bricks on top of it so that things can't get in and also we can't get out. You know, Psalm 11.3 says that the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? If we remove the foundation of Jesus from our life, all hell will break loose. We may get away from it for a while, but your life is going to turn into a mess, just like the church has turned into a mess when we've done anything but made Jesus our foundation. You know, the parable of foundations where Jesus talks about the one guy who builds his, his nice fancy house on the beach, the other guy who builds his nice fancy house in the mountains. I'm not saying if you like the beach, you're foolish. I prefer the mountains, just personally. But what happens? The rain comes, the storm comes. They both get hit by maybe the same storm that comes through the, the, the region. And one guy's house gets washed away. The other guy's in there drinking his tea. Wow, lightning's amazing, God. His house doesn't go anywhere because he built it on a firm foundation. And for us, that firm foundation is the Word of God. And we need to build our lives on it. Every little decision we make needs to be built on the Word of God. Now, I don't mean to go down the aisle and with those Oreos, Lord, well, the pages are black and white. That means I get an Oreo. Oh, there's red ones too. Does that mean? Uh, but sincerely, we need to pray about the scissors in our life, you know? And, you know, I used to be like, seriously, when you go to the supermarket, pray, Lord, help me to get what you want me to get. And I don't mean just for the Oreos. I mean, like, help me not to spend too much money. Help me to spend what you want me to spend, you know? Little prayers like that go a long way. I know it sounds silly, but I've noticed it in my own life when I've been in the habit and out of the habit. We're going to close up here shortly, but it says that these people are in the Bible as a witness for us, not only of what not to do, but also what to do. And in that, how God is faithful. God was faithful to the Israelites. You know, in Hosea, God's like, go marry this lady who's unfaithful so I can... Show my faithfulness to the, the people that they might come back to me. You know, he puts up with so much stuff. So much, you know. Like Sanford said on Wednesday, if I was God, there'd be, a, there'd be a lot more spontaneous combustion going on. But God is faithful. God is patient. And I think a danger is that people talk about things in the Bible, like uh, David had many wives, so I'm going to have many wives. Well, just because David did it and it's in the Bible doesn't mean that that's what God wants you to do. God just wrote it down because that's what David did and God needed to show a picture of that. They're there for our example, but not for our repeating. Not for our repeating. You know, it says, upon us, upon us, guys, the ends of the ages have come. You know, if people throughout all history have known the end was coming. You know, people know it. Look around. There's shows on TV. A coworker, a friend at work was telling me about a show. He's not a believer. He shows that he likes on HBO about people that get basically like raptured. And it's not like, I'm sure it's not like a good show in the end. It might be interesting, but it's not like, don't watch it and try and do a Bible study. But the world knows. The world knows. Um, uh, uh, Someone before shared with me jokes about TV stations. HBO is like hellbound only or something. Uh, If you watch Cinemax, you're sinning to the max, all these things. If you're watching Showtime, you got no time for the Lord. Amen. You know, like he was telling me that he used to have to hear that, but... So I'm not saying that it's bad, really. To, to, I'm sure there are bad shows, but so I'm not. don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't watch TV. But really, it's the end times, and even unbelievers know it. I remember being in a laundromat a few years ago, reading a, reading a book, and this like, young couple was in there, and we got talking. And it was like, they knew the end was coming. They didn't know the Lord. And I didn't think they wanted to, but... You know, people of all history have known it. People know it. I mean, animals know when a storm is coming. You know, animals hide, barn animals get messed up. Even at the flood, I think, in some sense, the animals were like, we know God's up to something. You know, we got to get on a boat or something. You know, <laughs> let's hope it. But we need to be aware. There's a bigger storm coming, and God doesn't want you to go through it. You know, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, whatever, it's not a salvation issue. You know, feel free to believe what you want, but I want to be out of here. And I believe that that's what the Bible teaches. But we need to be aware of it, just like those Pharisees who knew all the scriptures, but didn't know what the spiritual signs of the times were. People go, oh, you can't tell when Jesus comes back. I said, yes, you can. You just won't know the hour, the day, the hour. Tuesday at 4 o'clock, Jesus is coming back. No, but maybe this week. Jesus said, you'll know the times and the seasons. And boy, is it the time and the season for the Lord to come back, if ever. Maybe it'll be another 50 years, I don't know, but I don't think so. I'm wrong a lot, but I don't think I'm wrong about this. So... 
come see me in 50 years and say, why did you have to be wrong? That's what I do. But struggling with sin, on a serious note, struggling with sin, it's a good sign of new life. If you do not have a struggle with sin in your life today, guys, take another look. There should be a struggle with sin in your life. Now, I'm not saying you need to struggle with the same sin over and over for the rest of your life. God should be able to free from that. And, and maybe there is, maybe there isn't. You know, God just wants you to get to heaven. But if there is no struggle, if you feel like, oh, I'm doing good, you know, I haven't struggled with it in a while, I'd say, let's check our hearts. I know, for me, God's been ripping me apart lately. And it's like, wow, this stuff goes deep. It says, every man that should, amen is right, thank you. Take heed lest he fall. You know, that sure footing, that last step you forgot about, it's a doozy, you know. Sometimes we're asking God to speak to us something, but we haven't done what he's previously asked us to do. Well, let's go back and do the first things. Let's go back to our first love, like Drew was sharing the other day. You know, let's go back to him and, and worship him and fall in love with him all over again, because that's all it is. The further we get in the Bible, the further we should go back to that first love, you know. But sin is deceitful. You know, Hebrews three twelve and 13 says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, that while we still have the time, guys, let's warn each other. Let's admonish each other. Let's encourage each other. Hey, let's call sin what it is, guys. You know, I've heard it said that, uh, I believe it was Pastor Chuck, um, that he said, you know, sin spreads. You know, it's like a disease. Sin spreads because we don't call it what it is. It's like if you are sick and you go, oh, I'm not sick, and you go to work, ha, 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 everyone else is going to get sick because you didn't say, oh, I'm sick, I need to take a sick day. Same thing with sin. If we don't say, hey, guys, homosexuality is a sin, adultery is a sin, idolatry is a sin, lying is a sin, coveting, complaining, etc., the list goes on, it's going to spread. It's going to spread. But, you know, we need to do it in love because the whole point of that is Let's be ready for when the risen Lord comes back for us. You know, and temptation is not sin. Sin is sin. If you're tempted, it's not sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. He didn't sin. But when we begin to go back to it, we begin to take the second look, we begin to think about things, we begin to act on them, that's the issue. But God is faithful. He always provides a way out. There's always an exit. And I think sometimes, you know, we talked about, you know, grace, 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 warning, 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 discipline, grace, 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 grace. That along those times, God was giving us many ways out, many ways out. And we said, no, I'm going to go a little further, you know. You know, there's more exits at the back of this plane, you know. But he says, we'll never uh, be tempted beyond what we can bear. And that's awesome. Jesus was born and lived our life. He knows exactly what we can bear and what he can't. He knows basically we can't really deal with anything without him, and he wants to take it all, and that's what the cross is about. And there's always a way not to sin by the power of the Holy Spirit, and there's always a way. It doesn't mean that we're going to live a perfect life, but as believers, we now have a choice. Anytime you and I sin now as believers, it is our choice. We chose to do it. It wasn't because we were slaves to it any longer. But God wants us to get through it. And if you have sinned, if you're struggling with sin, if there's things in your life that are holding you back from following the Lord, that's okay. God wants to take them away. God, and this is crazy. God already did. So the only thing holding you back is saying, oh yeah, he already did. I don't need that. So let's ask to be baptized and we'll pray for that in a minute. You know, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, this is where we're going to close, says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, came from heaven, went to earth, died, came back to earth and heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain excuse me, mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God wants to help you. God, I mean, if he wants to help me, I mean, it's like, The fact that I get to share the word of God with you guys, I apologize for being emotional, but I don't, I don't get it. It's, thank you, it's, it's the Lord. And it's a blessing and an honor. I don't take it lightly to be able to share with you guys. You guys are a blessing, but 
the fact that God would use me is fantastic, and that just shows how much, how much, how glorious He is. Because we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. And I'm not saying that I'm any worse than any of you, or any of you are better than me, or vice versa. You know, I think that all our sin is at equal footing at the cross. Um, but it's like, wow, like God could do so many other things, but He chooses to use you, and He chooses to use me. And he doesn't want us to go through this life alone, guys. We need to, to hold fast that word of truth. We need to quit our bickering and complaining and love each other and move on. And, and that's not in the notes. So let's come to him because he's the promised one who brings us to the promised land. Amen?